Hello. Hi, John. Hi, Merlin. How's it going? Merlin, man. John, 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 John. Mm-hmm. So you had a you had a big uh, big morning, huh? Oh yeah, huge morning. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Whoopsie Daisy. Whoopsie doopsie. Lots of big uh, announcements uh, from Apple, and so I was kind of on the hook to uh, watch that. Yeah, did you live uh, live blog it? Oh, you know, just just you know, in texting to people. <clears throat> I, oh, I think it's kind of unseemly to do that stuff in public, you know. To live blog or <clears throat> live live simulcast. I, I, I see why people do it. But you know, it's uh, we're already watching it. We can see it because it's there. <laughs> you know. Yeah. It used to but what be about different. your hot takes? Oh, my what about takes. All the hot takes. I got steamy hot takes. You kidding me? <laughs> what? What about you know? Uh, fix my. Um, I don't know. Yeah, fix it, it, my. <laughs> yeah, fix. Well, yeah, you know they're gonna, they're working on the app store. The app store is going to look like it's too much to cover. It's too much to cover yeah. with the yeah, scope yeah. that we already have today. But uh, it's exciting. It's like iPads. You get computers. Uh, you can drag things. It's exciting. You got this guy over here. Mm-hmm. Got this, the whole uh, fuck, kit. Got the Fakakta Arab. King <laughs> Caboodle. And over here is uh, Lonnie and Jugdesh. You're you're way more awake than me. It's mm. uh it's one it's a little after one p.m. and and you're yeah, very it's, awake. It's, it's a good. This is a good time of day. I woke up at a natural time when I my body naturally rose to awakeness, and then I had some time to just you know. Play a little game of threes or two. Oh, that's think good. about the think about the day. Mm-hmm. Look at look at Wikipedia for a while. Oh, yeah, I got morning strong. rituals. I got morning rituals uh, along those lines. Yeah. As I as I get older and and seriously, my my, my brain is seriously going. Like re- it's mm-hmm. really going. So one of the things I do is uh, I do a very old man thing, which is when my family's you know getting ready to go places. Everybody's getting ready, and I'll say good morning, and I'll say today is monday and i'll say monday we have drop off at camp we have pick up mm-hmm. at camp we have preparing for the trip and they they kind of <laughs> they kind of they kind of look at me a little bit weird because i'm like you know uh, i'd like to think this is for all of the, all of us but you know let's be honest it's mostly for me because mm-hmm. if i don't if mm-hmm. i don't think about it you know uh, i may not do it well you know there are um there are these miraculous vitamins that just by coincidence, I happen to be an authorized dealer. Mm. And uh, I'm going to hook you up with a whole set of um, of supplements and dietary um, additives. Uh, is and, this like those brain crystals that make you smart? Uh, yeah. And they're what it also does, Merlin, is it builds muscle mass. It builds muscle and mass. It bur- and it burns fat. Huh. So... Uh, Pretty much, I've got the secret right here for you, and uh, don't worry about how much it costs. You would let me in on that? Today only, mm. I would, just because we're friends. Oh, my God. Thank you, man. I, I could definitely yeah. use that. So tomorrow morning, yeah. I'll say it's Tuesday, and I'm going to take yeah. some new powders. <laughs> they, uh, my, yeah. uh, you for need the, a little hammer and pestle, and yeah. you just sit and, and grind them up. and I'll bring it into the, uh, for the family stand-up meeting, the morning stand-up yeah. meeting. <laughs> all hands meeting. Do you guys have an all hands meeting? Every- <laughs> we do. We do. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, we have a, we have an ad hoc format. I mean, this is not interesting to our audience, but sure. Yeah, we'll we'll call Who family meetings. A- anybody is empowered to call a family meeting. And you, oh, really? You, you yell out "family meeting," and then one other person says, "Okay, stand by," and then and then everybody gathers and you have a huddle and you talk about whatever. Family and, meeting. Mm-hmm. 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 
Yeah. That's nice. That's really nice. That feels really nice. It's, you know what it is? It's that I, uh, in addition to my brain becoming a less powerful organ, it's also that like one way I keep the demon dogs at bay is to make sure that we've thought through things we need to think through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I hate being upended by not having thought through something that should be thought through. You do like to think through things. I, I'll confirm that for our listeners. You know, it's stuff like I feel like it's inexcusable in some ways. It's it's personally inexcusable for me if I just space something I really should have remembered. Like if I don't bring the tickets yeah. to something, like that's silly. Like why would I, you know, but the thing is yeah. if you're not thinking through the thing that you're going to do, it's very easy to do that. And so you have to have, you know, sort of compensatory muscles in a uh, real world sense that like help you from being a dumbass. Do you idiot check? Mhm. How extensive is your idiot check? program compulsive yeah. yeah yeah no i mean it's all kinds of things like um like when i'm traveling i have a whole list of like things that i'm really neurotic about like make sure mm-hmm. that the pilot light <laughs> is on make sure that the heat is turned down and and uh yeah it gives me a lot of pleasure to uh, tick that off of a list but even when leaving the house i have learned to like sort of check myself before i wreck myself and i still screw it up i forgot to wear coupons for the bookstore that we were going to and i forgot to bring them because I hadn't uh, thought through, I hadn't thought through that kind of trip. Now I remembered to bring the refill cup because we we're going to the cinema. I remember right. that. Right. But, oh, that, that's a that's a major. Bo- I mean, that's a big discount. Oh, you kidding me? It's like half price. Yeah. Shit. Shit, dog. And uh, no, uh, no. What well, about you? What's your? What you, what'd you call it? The idiot check. Well, yeah. Let me ask you: If you're leaving a hotel room, do you check drawers that you are certain you've never even opened? Yes, like you and go around the room and t- check d- the drawers, <laughs> even though you never opened them when yeah. you, the whole time you've been in there. Oh, I do way more than that. <laughs> well, the, the big one for uh-huh. me is, and I've gotten better about this over time, but like it used to be, I would always leave a phone charger or some kind of plug thing. Like, oh, I'll utilize this area behind the chair and put that there. The first thing I do is look for all of those things. I, I, I consolidate everything that needs to go into one or two areas. That's one thing. So, like, right. anything that's extraneous goes into the area of things that have to go. And then, yes, I will check every outlet. And then as far as the drawers, I will not only <laughs> check all the drawers, but I will leave them open in a staggered way as though they've been burglarized so that I'll remember I'll have a visual <laughs> visual cue. You've already checked this area. You've checked this, yeah. Isn't that terrible? Well, I mean, you know, I the, the only reason I ask is that it's a, it's a familiar feeling. But being on tour with four guys in a rock band, you know, what what a, what a tour is, is basically 40 opportunities in a day to leave something behind. Oh, I you see show what you're someplace, saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You open the back of the van and you start staging stuff to load it in. And if you don't, if you're not careful, you'll leave something sitting out there. And then you move it into the hallway and then you move it into the, the backstage and then you move it onto the stage. And each one of those opportunities is a new, you know, a new chance to like forget something key and then backstage and then you do it, you, you run it all out at the end of the night, but plus the merch and plus the money. And then you get to a hotel. And in a lot of cases, you have to move some of that stuff into the hotel because you don't want to leave it outside. Yes. And then back and forth. And so we got into the habit of just shouting idiot check at each other. Anytime we, anytime it seemed like we were all comfortably seated in a place like ah we're there everybody sits down it's like idiot check ah and you know you have to go back and retrace all your steps and invariably like the most expensive guitar is leaning up against the 
the the fire door outside. That's not, the, that's not the way your brain is really is working at the time, and you don't want to be the one guy in your platoon who forgot his helmet. Like the, like right. you, everybody has to have their stuff, and especially if like I figure like if you're staying in a hotel, you're probably mostly living out of a bag. You're not like unpacking, but even then, I feel like this is just a good rule of thumb in general: is always act. Like uh, you're you're about to be called into service, you're going to have to go run. Maybe it's an earthquake. Maybe it's uh, zombies or vampires. But always keep stuff close enough to you that, to the extent possible, you could know you have everything important without having to think about it. So don't take <laughs> stuff. Don't spread out at Starbucks. Like keep it in your bag. Take out one thing at a time. I, I don't know. That's just one way. I another bulwark against madness for me. Keep it in your bag, man. Keep it, keep in your it bag. together. Well, do you know the famous story that that. I, I'm not talking out of school here. This was years ago. This was decades ago. But one of uh, Death Cab for Cutie's earliest tours uh, that they took with us, the Western State Hurricanes, my band at the time, we went down to Austin and back. And I, I don't know if you are familiar with the story of Nathan, Death Cab's original drummer. Mm-mm. But Nathan was and is a genius. Like everyone who ever saw him play well, and it was it was hard in it when you saw Death Cab for Cutie when they were really young. They were so on fire. They were such an incredible band. But everyone walked away saying, "My God, that drummer! He really was. He was just like, you know, Ben wrote a lot of the drum parts, but Nathan just transformed them. He was he was otherworldly, but he was one of those otherworldly musicians that kind of just didn't appear to like drumming was kind of. A, not really the most important thing in his life, you know? And, mm. and when you, when you have somebody that has that kind of talent and all of us at the time were just, you know, struggling so hard and desperate to have that kind of gift. And well, then you meet somebody that has that kind of gift and they sort of feel like, Oh yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I drum, but it's not really, you know, it's not really what I want to do. It's just, it, it kind of, it's devastating, or I mean, it's you, you feel offended because it's because it's, he has such a gift. I met a kid a couple of years ago. I judged a contest, like a teenage band songwriting contest thing, mm-hmm. teen band contest, and there was one band that was just head and shoulders, not only above all the other teen bands who were great, all the best bands in the town, but these guys were just like. They could. They were ready, right? They were twenty years old, and they had the songs and the vibe, and you know this wonderful lead singer and these incredible tunes. And it was just like they're these guys are going to be the biggest band in in America. Like they had it, and their guitar player, who was phenomenal and who wrote all the songs, uh, considered the band just kind of a thing he was doing. Because on the side, because what he really wanted to do was like go to college and get a degree in chemistry and work in a lab. <sighs> and the other kids in the band, all of them knew what all of them felt what they had, and they all wanted it so desperately. And I was the so they won the contest, right? And then I did a thing that I never do, which is I went to them and said, "Let me." help you through this next stage. Like, let me advise you because you're incredibly gifted and I see that you're lost. Yeah, like so this, like, is, this is good enough to not screw up. Yeah. I'll, just let me sit with you and like, 
I'll hear you out, and then let me just make some couple of recommendations about where to, what to do next. And we got together, and you know, this guy kind of was just looking at his fingernails, like, "Yeah, this isn't really what I want to do with my life," you know. And what can you say? All you can say is like, "Great." I mean, I'm happy that you have something that you want to do more, but you're this is like the thing everybody wants. You have it. Yeah. I mean, I guess. Mm -hmm. And part of it is being young and you just don't, you know, you feel like, well, I'm good at this. I'll be good at everything. But Nathan, I mean, just such an extraordinary guy. And in, in the end, he just didn't want to, music wasn't his thing. He wanted to work in social services and he does, he lives in San Francisco now and, and, and helps people. But on this famous tour, we, we left Seattle. We drove for three, four days or whatever to get down to Austin. We arrived in Austin. They were loading into their showcase. And Nathan said, did any of you guys remember to get my snare? <laughs> and they all, mm. they all like stood up and they were like, what do you mean? Did we remember to get your snare? And he was like, well, I mean, it was there in the practice space. Nobody grabbed it. And when they got back home, like three weeks later, after this extremely long tour that we did oh, no. with a succession of completely borrowed snares in their in their totally empty practice space, right in the center of the room, there was the snare oh. in its little snare case sitting just in the center of the room. And it was like, wow, you know, this was the, this was maybe the second time they'd ever left town. It was like, forgot the got the snare that's an important drum <laughs> that's a key element <laughs> <laughs> i mean if, if you uh didn't have one of your particular like your your third favorite zildjian crash symbol yeah. you could survive you didn't remember your mallets you mm -hmm. know eh. but i'd say that's but one of that's... the two that's one of the two critical drums <laughs> That's um. So anyway, that's that's a line we still use on each other all the time. Hey, did, did any of you guys? Oh God! Remember my snare? Did any guys? Any of you guys see my snare? Oh, boy. I'm sure I've told you this one before, but <clears throat> I learned this from a pal of mine in uh, high school, who, as it happens, was was the guy who drove us to concerts a lot, and he started this. Uh, he, I don't know if he invented this. He's the first person I never ever knew ever knew to do it. Is that when you got in the car, once everyone was in the car, you had to take your ticket out of your pocket and you had to hold it to your forehead, and then everybody had to do it at the same time. Everyone looked at each other and everyone acknowledged that you could see a ticket on every single person's forehead. <laughs> and you know, I, of course, you're reluctant at first, but he knows where yeah. he speaks. He's driven yep. to Tampa and had and realized one person forgot their ticket. Well, that, you know, kind of scotches the evening for everybody. That's that's not fun. And as stupid as that is, uh, there, there were ample times that the uh, the challenge ticket <laughs> was demanded, <laughs> and there was at least one person that did not have it. Because <laughs> it works. It's like, stop yeah. trusting your brain to be a brain, you know? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Ugh. Ugh. So, yeah, we idiot check all the time, and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at, you know, and that includes, like, under the bed... Under the behind the shower curtain, it's 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 always where you least think. Behind the door, you know, is where stuff ends up. You just have to go, yeah, and you have to shout it right, like idiot check. And sometimes you'll idiot check, and then 
someone else will come through behind you and find your iPhone charger that you left behind the chair. That happens all the time. You get you get blind to whatever it is that you're looking for. You're looking for like yeah. your brain's looking for the wrong pattern or something. Yeah. And there's I mean I feel like there must be a balance to be struck that's somewhere between like whatever and like yeah. like constantly like fretting and neurotic about it. There must be somewhere in between and like, Yeah, like opening the drawers of things that you've never even you never even looked at until you started searching and for right, stuff that you didn't Exactly, put in it. Yeah. but I'm telling you this one stuff like you know, look behind the chair, look under the desk, look in. Oh, you forgot when you were in a good mood and arrived, you put stuff on the top shelf of the closet. Like yeah. you're going to be there for one night and you're putting stuff yeah, in the you're closet. In a, you're in a good mood. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm an I'm unpacking guy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know how you did one it, time man. In, Ooh, it's stressful. It must be stressful to, touring. I just, I can't even imagine. It's crazy. I, uh, one night in Montreal, we went after the show to some, you know, cafe and sat there and had a good old time and got up and went for a long walk and walked. I mean, Montreal is a huge city, much, much bigger than than anyone gives it credit for. And mm. we have walked and walked and walked all the way across town. And I suddenly realized that I had left the bag with all of the money we'd made on the tour just sitting next to my chair. Oh, in no. the cafe, just left it there. Oh no! <gasps> and so I sprinted, and you know I'm not much of a sprinter. Hmm. I'm I'm more <laughs> of a, you know I'm more of a, a walk down there and fuck all those cows than I am uh, like a run across Montreal yeah. kind of guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, ran and ran and ran and ran and ran. Pant, 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 pant. Uh. Finally, and this was before, you know, there was any kind of call a car service. And I think I stopped on a couple of street corners and tried to hail cabs. And then I was like, that won't work. You know, all these cabs are going the wrong direction. Ran and ran and ran. Finally, roll into this place. And um, there's the bag. Just Just sitting there. Just sitting there. Nobody had messed with it. Wow. Nice cafe. I thanked everyone in the place. They all applauded. So it was it was good luck in that instance. But I'm pretty good about pretty good. I don't want to jinx myself, but I'm, I mean, I had a similar. This is not interesting, but one time I remember I was camped out somewhere. I was reading something. I was writing something, and I went about my business. And I think it was about an hour later, I went, "Where's my backpack?" Where's my, and it was actually outdoors. It was like near a busy street. I had left my backpack like on the street. Pant, 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 pant. Running, 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 running. And it was totally just sitting there, totally undisturbed, which is pretty That's crazy because, so I mean, we have people going through our trash six times a day. So, like, I'm, I'm used to the idea that very few things are left undisturbed in this city. Right. <laughs> Everything's disturbed here. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, but uh, you know, it's amazing, like, hiding in plain sight. I just thought about this this morning because I often leave my barn door open and this isn't is that a euphemism? This isn't like this isn't a euphemism this isn't the beginning of a dirty joke mm-hmm. i <laughs> just uh, whatever you I, do don't touch my daughter <laughs> i have a barn door mm-hmm. uh that's part of my barn mm-hmm. and um and sometimes i just leave it wide open and it's counterintuitive because the barn is full of tools and full of other things that you wouldn't want people to steal but it is, I think, like things get broken into in in my neighborhood, 
Like the, the my next door neighbor had a boat on a trailer and some kids broke into the boat. Like, what hmm. do you think you're going to find in a boat? Yeah. I mean, I guess a flare gun. Because you're not. Here be the ass. <laughs> but I just leave my barn door wide open sometimes for weeks at a time. And I think it just sends the message. There's nothing in here. There's nothing in here even worth closing the door. And as far as I know, the only thing, the only people that go in that barn and molest anything are the raccoons mm-hmm. that go in and eat all the cardboard boxes. Door's not going to stop them. Well, that's true, too. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's the hiding in plain sight thing, I guess, where it's like. Yeah. If you're if you're if you're walking through the neighborhood and you're like should we should we go under that tarp and break into that boat or should we walk into that barn? I think this is a this is not going to go for lots of things in life, but one thing I've learned, I feel like a little bit from having a kid. My kid's pretty good with remembering, well, she's not good at remembering things, but she's pretty good at not losing things mostly. We lose a lot of jackets that she takes off at recess and forgets about. Um Right. But I think in some ways, I think it's when you're traveling, it's a little bit like planning to go to the beach. We're like, whatever you bring to the beach, and this is a little extreme, but you, when you go to the beach, you need to figure there's going to be sun, there's going to be sand, there's going to be a lot of water. You know, don't bring anything with you to the beach that would not stand up well to sun, sand, and or water. Because that's right. why you're going to the beach. You're going to the beach because those are the performance characteristics of a beach. And I think it's kind of like that with travel, too. Like, don't bring heirlooms in a packed suitcase if you can if you can possibly avoid it. Because, you know, I mean, it's, it's a way of just asking yourself, like, what could I afford to lose? And then, like, kind of plan around that. Nice. In that uh, Beatles book I was reading, there was a story when they were beginning the book in late 65 and... I guess uh, they were they were doing a gig, I think, in Northern England, and one of the guitars was poorly secured. It was like I think George's like favorite old Gretsch, and just went flying off oh, the back yeah. and yeah. got run over. And it's like, ugh, it just breaks your heart to think about that. Well, think about all the great instruments of all the great players that have been stolen and lost, and you know, I think, um, what is it like? Uh, Jaco Pastorius's most famous bass just got was just missing, and there are all these there are all these instruments like key instruments in the moments of of music that got stolen out of the back of a, a venue like, or know, something. Do you think and, Brian May takes his original guitar on the road? Like probably not. There are there are people who do, and the thing about Brian May, right, is that if he does take that guitar on the road. It's not like he's throwing it in the trunk of his car. There, he's pro- there are probably three people that their only job is to make sure that that guitar is fine at all times. No, Espinal is not going to space, you know, tying it down right. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, you know, I think that, I think, right, like Clapton took Blackie mm-hmm. and Billy Gibbons takes, you know, Golden Slumbers or whatever the fuck his guitar is called. Um, and uh, Golden Showers. <laughs> uh like how, those guys how, do, how, how, how they do use those instruments still. Yeah. Um, Sting and his fifty-two, uh, 52 Telecaster uh, bass. He's got a Fender Yoga bass. A Yoga bass. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think those instruments do do kind of still get used. I mean, Prince's fav- famous Telecaster with the with the leopard spot pickguard. Still, he still would trot that thing out. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's I mean, what, I yeah definitely... now when you're traveling at that level, like Keith Richards probably can bring pretty much whatever he wants because he's got a whole like, you know, force around him. Yeah, but Keith Richards could also throw a 59 Les Paul into a bandsaw <laughs> because <laughs> who the fuck cares? There's a lot of great Rolling <laughs> fuck Stones. Fuck that particular fret. <laughs> <laughs> that, I think that the, you know, the Stones, I think their instruments kind of came and went. You know, there are guitars out there. And this is the crazy thing that that there are people that, I mean, I, I was just looking online not very long ago at guys that, collected old who amplifiers like smash you know the, no no like like the uh a company called sound city made some custom heads for pete townsend and that company became high watt and high watt continued to make sort of custom heads for pete all through the early to mid 70s and i think as he i mean as those amps i mean they, they kind of just got garage sailed Sort of like what happened at Abbey Road, right? They had a garage sale, hmm. and they sold, like, the Mellotron, the Abbey Road Mellotron, and they sold all the all the custom-built, like, red six desks or whatever. Lenny Kravitz has one of the desks from Abbey, Abbey Road, because he just I don't know was if, like... I don't know if they were exaggerating, but Matt from Oranger said they had uh, the board from, I think, the uh, the brothers' board from, like, Pet Sounds. Yeah, well, see, there's a lot of that stuff, right? Because how many really great recording desks are there? There are a lot, but if but, you're but the Mellotron that played on, you know, like Sergeant Pepper, <laughs> that's kind of a big deal. That's kind of a big deal. Yeah, but even, but even that's that little stuff of like, you know, the 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 desk um, that we used to record the first couple of Long Winters records um, was the desk from Hollywood Bowl. And so you get you know, this kind of feeling of like, wow, think of all the music that went through this board. And that's a real, that's a thing. You Is know, this I, Hall, I, Hall of Justice? Hall of Justice, yeah. Um, it was a it was a quad eight desk, which is, you know, kind of a, they're a boutique-y, uh, not boutique-y, they're an unusual kind of, of the era kind of board. But I've recorded through the board where uh, Bob Marley recorded uh one of his early records in london wow um you know that it's a thing that gets talked about when you sit down in, in a recording studio like oh this board was the one from uh, you know from sausalito or from ocean way or whatever mm -hmm. but when you think about god the oh so there's there's there, there are these websites of these people that are like i bought this amp at a pawn shop, and I turned it over and it had the Who stenciled on it. <laughs> and so I, I looked it up. It turns out that this was one of like nine amps that Pete Townsend used uh, in the course of, you know, the 70s Who. That kind of thing happens? All the time, I guess. I you can't, know? Find, I can't find a used shirt that fits me. It's not yellow. And people are finding <laughs> fucking Pete Townsend's amp. Yeah, I guess you just you you just have to be shopping in the pawn shops that it's that Pete Townsend's amp is likely to show up in. I mean, I don't think that person found it in Ames, Iowa. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, probably were in London or something, but still, pretty hot. Because things didn't matter to people then, you know, when they when they when they, they didn't, broke didn't have the apart, same. They didn't have well, they didn't have the same mythology 
and reverence about the same things that we do today. They might have reverence for, for quite different things back then. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I think you're right. And I remember when radio stations in the United States were transforming themselves into digital because CDs had supplanted um, not only LPs, but also carts, right? Like carts were a, a thing that were used in radio that were like an eight-track tape player, basically. They were totally and, using those in the 90s at ours. Yeah, right. A I mean, lot of the local carts. music they played, they would just put on carts, as well as the, you know, PSAs and stuff like that. Well, and and right around the time that I started touring, like, late 90s, early 2000s, radio stations were kind of all changing their their build so that it was all kind of going to computers and it was going to be digital hither thither. And a lot of these radio stations had custom-built amplifiers and compressors, like, you know, stuff made by Ampeg in the 50s, like whole walls of these beautiful uh, universal audio and and other, like, really, really now, really valuable outboard gear. And they were just pulling that stuff out and tossing it in the dumpster uh, because... They were going to. They were going digital, and and that stuff was. It was already valuable, but on a very kind of low secondary market of people that were trading eleven seventy sixes. They cost money, but the people that were working in these radio stations weren't in weren't part of that community, and so it just seemed like I I, I was walking through the college uh, radio station at, in Davis, UC Davis. And they had their whole hallway was full of what had been their old studio, all these like tape machines and stuff. And and they were just it just kind of was out there under tarps. And I think they were just wheeling it. They were just somebody was going to come in a dump truck or or in a in a pickup and take it all away. It was uh, there's, there's an element of our our nominal topic this week that comes up in some of this, which is that. Um, I don't know quite how to phrase this. It, it takes it takes a while, and it takes some it takes some changes. It takes some quality. It takes a while for stuff to become art, or for stuff to seem precious. And so that's mm. one reason I think we we get so interested in the what you might call ephemera of previous eras. So like you know we've all seen you know this famous painting, or we've all seen like you know there's a first edition of this book. Stuff anybody could see was really valuable but like to see like the personal effects of someone like you know on the lines of your dad right where you could see their receipts and you could see all this little stuff where you could see this is a maquette of what became a very famous statue or this is you know what i'm saying like this is one of the various copies of this document that existed it's you know i i wonder how much people had that same sense of reverence because that really feels like something especially with rock music that was more common starting in like the seventies and it would be the, the, the nostalgia and reverence was, was not for the current generation necessarily was not for the previous generation. It might be like two generations ago. So that's why like in the seventies, you might want a fifties rock and roll poster. That's an original, but I mean, even then, like, you know, there's, there weren't as many Paul Allen type people around at that time to gobble up all that ephemera and want to put it somewhere. I, I feel like that is like an eighties and beyond kind of thing. You know? I think it is. I mean, there was always 
there was always someone who recognized that this was George Washington's sword and that that meant something, right? Because we have George Washington's sword, several of them still. And whoever, when George Washington died, whoever had that sword definitely told their grandkids that they couldn't play with it. You know, like that was right, right. George Washington's sword. But if, if, if people had always thought the way we think now, we would have every single pair of John Adams's socks, you know, like there, we, we place such a tremendous value on all that ephemera and most of it throughout history is lost to time, right? We don't have Genghis Khan's stirrups. Um, and I do think it started in, I do think it started in the eighties. I don't think in the seventies of 1950s rock poster, probably meant that much well you know i'm even thinking like because obviously people collected records and you might be really proud of your collection but the real the purpose was still to have records that you could play and you wanted all the records and you might want rare records but maybe there's some you didn't play so much but you know it's very different from i mean uh, perhaps an extreme example is like in the world of comics where you can do this thing Mm. called grading where there's this this one organization where you send your comic they evaluate the the quality of it in this really rigid way and then they put it inside they encase it in plastic which is called blocking so and so you know the thing is though i mean if you sure if you've got you know like the first superman comic um and so something like that like obviously you want to really take care of it but like how many of your comics do you really want in a, in a slab of plastic <laughs> <laughs> kind of, uh, kind right. of defeats the purpose of having the comics. And therein, I think, albeit in an extreme way, therein lies the distinction. You know, if, if this is Pearl Jam's van, like, are we supposed to look at it? Are we supposed to drive around in it? You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and there have always been, right, The what were the classic things to collect? Coins, mm-hmm. stamps, yep. art. Um, people kept a hold of Stradivarius instruments. So nice there was <laughs> Stradivari. 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 Um, people, you know, uh, there have always been things that were held in high regard such that they were passed down. Antiques, if you will, mm-hmm. right? Um, but yeah, this other thing that you're talking about. The, um, it becomes an the it becomes an, that, a deliberate object. Like this has yeah, stopped that, to be what it was intended to be, and now it's just an object to be collected and looked at and traded. Exactly. Chris Ballou's gold spray painted boots on display at the Experience Music Project are a great example right. of a of a time when uh, when it you know we really I think around here thought that. It was a weird moment, right? Because we recognized that Jerry Garcia's finger, if you had it in a box, it was worth money now. And here we were sort of feeling like in the in the early 90s that we were replicating San Francisco in the late 60s mm-hmm. or the mid 60s. We were replicating that whole experience. And therefore, we had better grab all of this stuff like Chris Ballou's boots and put them under glass because one day they would be worth something. And it's funny because times have changed. I mean, I think probably Chris Ballou's boots under glass were worth a lot more in 1998 than they are now. 
uh, because <laughs> people were yeah, there was a market for them then, and now it's like, oh yeah, do you want Chris Blue's boots? I know where you can get those. You go here's his address. <laughs> They're basically like pogs. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, he wears a, you know, he's going through a pair every year. He's got a whole stack of them. Beanie Babies, Fidget Spinners, got to catch them all. But listening to Sgt. Pepper, mm-hmm. uh, this this brand new uh, remix of Sgt. Pepper that you might have heard about. Hmm. Um, right at the end of the day in a life, a day in the life, the day in a life, there's, um, you know, they hit that enormous piano chord. And the chord rings out, and we all know the story, right? They, when we can picture them all sitting there, you know, three to a bench on these grand pianos. Yeah, it was like three, three, three guys, three pianos, and you can hear the chair squeak at the end. And you hear the chair squeak. Did you that's hear what it? I'm. That's exactly <laughs> what I'm saying. And the thing is, there's no way that you can't hear it because as they were remixing this, they, I mean, every compressor in the country was pointed at that chair squeak. So that we would, so that it was there. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that fucking chair squeak is the whole game because it, it scratches that itch for all of us. Like <gasps> the chair squeak, whose, whose butt was it? Ringo's butt? Was it George's butt? I thought it was George Martin's butt. It was George Martin's butt squeak. And, and the, and, and the way it plays into the whole thing, like, all right, you guys, you know, everybody quiet. We're going to hit this chord. And then just be quiet, let it ring out, and then somebody fucking squeaks. I, in, in, in that sense, I bet it was Paul. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You got a hard on for Paul. <laughs> but, but, uh, but at any other time, you know, that would have been, any other time pre-Beatles, I think that absolutely would have been edited out. The, the, the mix would have, they would have said, even if they'd been trying to do the thing, they would have said, well, at, we'll mix it out at the chair squeak. Right. And even now, when you're when you're recording, it's a big it's a big question whether or not to leave those things in, because I think in the days of four and eight track recording, if if a mistake got made and got left in, it just got left in and you didn't have options. Yeah. And that is part of the sound that we love about old records. And now that you have the option, I mean, you can go in and, and monkey with the waveform and take chair squeaks out while leaving the the main sound. You know, you could keep the chord in and take the chair squeak out because you could pinpoint what it was. So now the question is, do we leave that mistake in in order to, you know, as an effect almost? Do we leave it in to make it sound like it's rawer than than it is. Well, there's some things where if you fixed it, you'd mess it up a little bit. Like going back and listening to the raw tracks on, um, I don't know what the word for it is, but the the take that they use, the, the basic tracks, um, you hear flubs. Like it happens. And like, you know, uh, do you want that taken out? That's part of how the song sounds. Or when Paul, uh, this is not even on one of the stony ones, but on um, If I Fell, the second time he sings the bridge, his voice cracks a little bit and you can hear him laugh just a little mm-hmm. bit on the second bridge mm. like oh my god don't take that out because i show that i point that out to my daughter every time it comes on like don't take that out that's that's part of the song well so that i think is a nice segue into the question of whether or not you remix sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band that's right yeah and, and i mean <clears throat> we don't need to turn this into yet another you know long article or video about this but the, the basic idea was 50th anniversary george martin's son um 
And if you have more information or can correct me, do that. But my understanding is they went in, they got the, to the extent possible, the original tracks, meaning like the unbounced down, unspeed corrected, like original tracks from Sgt. Pepper, and then wanted to reconstruct it for mainly around sound quality to keep, make it still the versions uh, that you're familiar with. But but again, the, the stereo and the mono mixes of these things were so different, uh, and they wanted to create a really good sounding stereo mix that still honored you know the way it was put together, but also bringing out sounds that you just couldn't hear uh, in the various versions in the past. Right, and now we have it. Now we have it, and I have listened to it. And the old stereo mixes, not exactly back to back, but I listened to one and then, you know, listened to the other and was just kind of thinking about the two things. And they're markedly different listening experiences. From the pre-existing stereo in particular. The original stereo mix and the, and this latest mix, um, you know they're they are they're very different, it's a very different song to song, and the whole experience of the album is very different. And mm-hmm. I, I went into it I think, with the, with the assumption that I was going to be down on it. Because like, cause every, like why, why tinker with this, right? Well, yeah, it's the George Lucas thing again. You know, like yeah, we have the technology. Why you know we have the technology to to have the original tracks, but with the chipmunk singing over it. But why, mm-hmm. you know, um, like why put a CGI job of the hut in it? Uh, that's kind of a deep, deep, deep mm-hmm. reference. Oh, there. no, no, I'm it's not a, sure. some, <clears throat> some listeners will get it, but you were, you okay. were prepared right. to, so going into it thinking, maybe this isn't a good idea. And you were kind of a little bit preloaded to uh, not be into what you heard. Well, what did you think it was going to be? Did you think it was going to be too refreshed, too modern, wouldn't respect the old sound? Like, what were you, what were you worried it would be? Mm, the thing is, the, the stereo mixes of those records were bad. And we all know that they were bad. They've always been bad. They like you like you said last week, they were an afterthought. The band was all there for the mono mixes and then there was this new fad stereo and everybody went home and left it to the skeleton crew to kind of like, well, you know. Which at that point was a little bit like turning your existing movie into 3D. You were going to yeah. be trying to cater <laughs> to this specialized market that was actually actually um not your primary channel that you were selling into. But there were also, I mean, there are pretty big differences in some cases of the speed of it, in some cases a little bit of arrangement. And, and I mean, famously, like Ringo's drums did not sound good in stereo. He's a very nuanced player, and a lot of that was really lost, um, especially in the stereo mix. Oh, well, the reason that it was lost is that they didn't yet know, I mean, this dawn of stereo, right? They didn't know how to mix. So Ringo's Ringo's drums aren't, um, it's not stereo that doesn't serve them. It's that at the time it wasn't clear to them. Like here's the standard that we all use now, right? When you're, when you bring up a mix, a stereo mix of a song, the drums are right up the middle. And so what right up the middle means is you've got, you've got these knobs that are called pan knobs 
and you can pan a sound all the way into the left headphone or all the way into the right headphone, or you can bring them sort of there. It's 60% in the right headphone and 40% in the left headphone. And what that does is in your mind, when you're listening to it, it makes it sound like the instrument is kind of over in it's in that side of the room, but it's not all the way over. You know, it but, can, but in that case, the entire drum set. It's the entire the, the, you're, you're more trying to emulate the, the part about that seems so crazy in retrospect is you wouldn't think to mix each. Well, you didn't have the ability to mix each drum differently, different effects, different panning, different gate, different everything on each drum to create a new drum sound. It was more like emulating where the drums were in a room. And often as not, it was almost all the way hard right or hard left for most of the instruments. Right, which does not emulate the sound of drums in a room. That's the crazy thing. Like so much <laughs> of mixing is is to trick your brain. Yeah. So if both <clears throat> if a if an instrument is equal in both headphones, it sounds like it's straight ahead. It sounds like it's right in front of you. I mean, it's really appear it sounds like it's appearing right inside your mind in a way. And when we mix records now, it's understood in the main that the drums are mixed right in the middle. And the bass is mixed right in the middle, and the lead vocals are mixed right in the middle. That's where you want them. Mm -hmm. And then all the other stuff, your pianos, your reverbs, your backing vocals, your guitars, your strings, everything else is kind of panned around the the sphere. So, you know, you, you put a you put your lead guitar over here, you put the tambourine over there, and that's how you get that stereo field. But you don't want an entire drum kit. With all that's going, all that's going on in a drum kit, you don't want it mixed hard left, because it just and and if you do put something there, you can't put anything else there. Like the drums take a lot of they take informational space, right? Mm -hmm. So what made Sergeant Pepper, what what made those mixes terrible is that on a lot of songs, and the thing is, every song they did a different, they did a different thing, but like there were quite a few songs where the entire kit, like you're saying, is just all the way over. There it is. Mm -hmm. Like fixing a hole. The drums are completely, completely left. And the piano is completely left. And the bass is completely left. And so the rest of the song <laughs> is all over here on the right. You know, all the like bling blangs and chink janks and, and the singing and the vocals. And it's like that is crazy. That's, that seems that's what, like such a strange decision. And the, to me, a classic example with the Ramones, it's kind of funny, and I don't mind it, that it's all bass over here, all guitar over there. If you listen to it with one speaker, you can hear one or the other, full stop. But that's with, that's with three instruments and vocals. Yeah. And it's right. kind of cute. But like, I'm kind of surprised that that passed the sniff test, even for... The early days of stereo, it's such an odd decision because it's not, if you have headphones on, it's not fun to listen to. Well, and I don't, I think one of the things was people didn't really, they weren't mixing with headphones. They had speakers in the room and they set it up like that. And it's like, yeah, I mean, it's so different when you're mixing a song to listen to it in headphones. Oh, I'll bet. And it's, it's why things now, most music now that people are making at home or stuff like that, it's all mixed in headphones. And when you're when you're in a studio and you're making an album, you listen to it through the big speakers, and then you switch and you listen to it through the little speakers, and then you listen to it in headphones, and then you listen to it in the cheap little dime store speakers. And every time you hear 
different things poking out. You know, you put headphones on, you're like, oh, no, we're compl- we've been working on this all day and it sounds like shit. Mm-hmm. And you have to go back and start over. But if you do it on the headphones, it's the same thing. You listen to it on the speakers. It's like, oh, no, that's not right. And it's so so what they were doing is sitting in this room listening to it on speakers. And I think they thought, well, let's make it sound like the band is over here. <laughs> and the singer's over there. That makes good sense. If we're going to do the it, stereo, we might as well really do it so people can really hear yeah. the, the definition, the separation. Yeah, but, and, yeah. I, and I think if you're sitting in your living room, if you're like in a Mac, Maxell uh, uh, magazine ad in your black, your black sunglasses, sitting in your chair with your glass of wine about to spill, mm-hmm. listening to your music coming out of your big hot speakers, it probably doesn't sound as unusual because it just it's you're getting room reverb your ears are picking up stuff it's the it's the isolation of headphones where if it's not in your right speaker your right ear isn't going to hear it mm-hmm. and that's what makes it sound so trippy so so to say that those stereo mixes of Sgt Pepper are like sacred somehow i i guess it's not defensible because there's there's they were such um some of them were were just like well that was a that was a mistake i mean you were you were right at the you were right at the gate of mixing in stereo and that's not how we ended up doing it right um and it's and, and also it um for this for this new and very ambitious and very i can use that word nuanced material um you know it's it's a shame that it came across sounding a little thin. You don't really hear yeah. a rock band in there. It's it's very difficult. I mean, for I mean, first of all, just the magic of what they are doing with bouncing this stuff down on the equipment that they had. It's incredible. It's it's absolutely incredible. And it really was the they were helping create the future of music that we're still living with today with what they were the hacks that they were doing to try and like change the tape speeds and get this onto there and bounce these down to this. It's all great. But I mean, but the thing is the material, it always seemed like the material was thin because the sound was thin in some ways. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Although, although being for the benefit of Mr. Kite is pretty thin. <sighs> well, that's just to, in terms of disclosure and getting this out of the way. Like I said last week, I would still count Sgt. Pepper as probably my, my maybe my fourth favorite Beatles record. Yeah. But it's not it's never been because of the production. It's just because I there's not as many songs that I adore on here. There's a handful of songs I really, really like. I'm glad they were getting ambitious. I'm glad they were trying stuff. I think it's a very successful, very good record. Is it the greatest album of all time? I don't think it is. I don't think the material is 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 their strongest. And yeah. so I'm you, not, I don't mean to berate the Beatles. I mean, I don't mean to punch down to the Beatles here. But like, <laughs> <laughs> I check my privilege. Um, but uh, but but you know I, that's that's the thing though. But I guess I'm putting this so poorly. But the problem is that the the material is is unusual. It's slight. It's got weird instrumentation. And like, yeah. so obviously, if they were trying to put out like a thrash metal album and it sounded like that, it would be an abject failure from the very beginning. It's just some of the songs. I mean, they're very they're, they there can be very strong songs with good parts, but I just I'm saying that like for the past fifty years, it has not benefited from the fact that it really it didn't there, you couldn't hear the rock music in it. You know, even when it was like a vaudeville song, you couldn't appreciate like how Paul's bass sounds, like every note he hits. And this is before we even get into Ringo's drums, which is going to be like three hours of this podcast for me. 
Yeah. But that's that's where I, it's been. And if you if you wanted a robust, great sounding mix, you could still go back and listen to mono. But mono is like black and white. It's like when I show, apart from the movie Duck Soup, my daughter does not want to watch anything in black and white. It feels it's a castrated color movie to her. Really? I don't know if that's her words. But <laughs> 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 it doesn't right. sound like her. Let me do another take on that one. <laughs> um, you know, I agree about the record and listening to it, listening to it like I did uh, the, the last couple of days thinking about it. You know, it's really clear that something in Paul really wanted to write this musical music. He wanted to write music for his mom. He wanted to write this sort of Edwardian, hey, you know, kind of like music that you would hear at, at, on the boardwalk in Brighton in 1912. And like eager, old timey, show busy music. Yeah. And, and music that was, I mean, it, those songs that Paul writes in that music hall style are really f- all ages, you know, from, from nine to 90. Anybody is going to be able to enjoy it. It's not, it's not, the songs are not dark. They're fun. And they're old timey. And he really, really wanted to explore that sound. And what I've always loved about the Beatles and what scared me about them when I was 10 and really wanted to be scared by the Beatles was that those songs in the context of the Beatles were terrifying. Because what the fuck are these people on? You know, it, it compared to, I mean, you have one of these Paul songs like la da 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 and then uh, right next to it is like, why don't we do it in the road or something? And, and taken together, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful part of the Beatles. But imagining, as I so often do, what it was like to be John Lennon, and sitting there thinking that you are an avant-garde artist, and then Paul comes in with It's Getting Better All the Time, or Lovely Rita, and John just, like, had to be feeling the... Had to be... I mean, you, we, we all know he was. He was just feeling this resentfulness at what he perceived to be Paul's corniness. Mm-hmm. So Sergeant Pepper, the whole vibe of the record was Paul saying, I've got it! Why don't we pretend to be a band? And if we pretend to be a band, then all my cornball uh, music hall stuff won't be us, will it? It'll be a funny band. Mm-hmm. And the, and he's presented it in in that way that Paul loves to sort of revise uh, history. As <laughs> Here it goes. we go. Here we go. <laughs> he's presented it as like, no, you know, it was my attempt to, you know be very odd to you, wouldn't it? Isn't it? And, but really what was motivating him was he wanted to do, he wanted to do a kid's record almost. And he had to, and then, and then the, the, the weird arty stuff, he had to contend with George who was like, you know, riding a magic carpet around (laughs) and Lennon, who was already starting to come unglued, you know, Lennon was already starting a hard time. Yeah, he was he was hitting a rough patch. Yep. And so then you and then you get the magic of them all together and you throw it together and here's this extraordinary record. But I was, you know, the the famous story, right, about here comes Paul with it's getting better all the time, and then Lennon comes in with can't get much worse. Mm-hmm. 
And it's like, oh, that's the, there it is right there, the Lennon-McCartney frisian. But what really stands out is that Lennon's backing vocals in that tune are so much of a fuck you to the song. Like his backing, all of his life. It's almost like he's singing Ooh. along on the radio with a song that he doesn't like, and so he does a squeaky yeah. grandma falsetto. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, I can't complain. Can't his, get no worse. His, his, his tone, his choice of the way he sings, his his intentional out of tuneness, are like a con- a contemptuous contribution to the song. He's actively hating it as he performs it. And it's amazing that he got away with it, that whatever their dynamic at the time and their dynamic with George Martin was that he could do that. And I think probably Paul was gritting his teeth and saying like, oh, yeah, that's very good. You know, that's very creative. And somehow it got through. Somehow Lennon managed to say like, no, that's what this tune needs. It needs me like mocking it throughout and it's not just the you know it's not just can't get much worse it's like every note out of his mouth and then when paul's harmonies come in they're beautiful and perfect so you know like that that uh that ugliness didn't extend to the harmonies that paul put on right he paul was still trying to keep it fun uh And that's that you you hear that throughout this record when you really like zoom in on it, but they were still nominally friends at that point. They hadn't, the thing hadn't decayed, but the signs were there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, but it it is funny how they, you, the more you learn, it's when you apply some genetic criticism to this and you know things and you hear stories and you read things, but it's strange though, that like, it's strange and it's fortunate that they were able to hold it together as long as they did to, to you get something like Strawberry Fields and, and Penny Lane that, you know, such, such different songs, such different approaches, but like we can, we as the audience can appreciate those as, well, you know, they did those first, right? That was the first I thing mean, they recorded. Yeah. But I think Strawberry Fields was the very first thing. Can you imagine how <laughs> much better this record would be if it had those two songs on it? And just those two songs, right? But especially let Penny alone, Lane. like yeah. Well, and and you know they're both like they're both total peak Beatles, right? The the total triumph. And Penny Lane is a classic Paul like song for all ages, and Strawberry Fields is Lennon on his drug, his drug thing, and and yet they're not on that record, and so so you get. You know, you get a little bit of like the subpar Beatles, and yeah, and still it's considered the greatest record in history. Right. If we had those two songs on that record, it would be, I don't know, God, such a much better record. Yeah. I still I mean, don't understand that whole. I think, well, I, in a little bit of reading about this, it sounds like they they felt like they were cheating if they were releasing singles off of an album. That their yeah. their typical set was, you know, you're gonna get these. 10 usually 10 songs plus a single and in this case uh the first not the first is it technically the first double a side what about don't be cruel and hound dog i mean isn't that a double a side that is some record record talk that i'd i can't join in i have no idea it sounds like a double a side but i think back then i think hound dog era they weren't released as double a sides 
they were released as mm-hmm. uh, AB, and then then the DJs flipped it over, and they were like, "Whoa!" Right, and it became a double A, but the Beatles released it intentionally as a double A sign. Right, 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 totally. Did I I get that right? I'm going to get mail about this. Did I get that right? Is it Hound Dog and Don't Be Cruel? I don't want to get email about that. It seems like such a squandered opportunity, but then I'm the guy that put Commander Thinks Aloud on an EP. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 look at you. Yeah, look at me. Um. It's weird though. I mean, like I, when I listen to it, I go, "Hmm, I like that song. I like that song. I like this other song." Um, but you know, it's it isn't. It's it's for me as an album, and I'd, let, I'd like to get to the sound stuff because I think that's that's where the story is for me on this one. But um, I mean, there are even more shambly things I like. Like I would, I think I would prefer the White Album to this. That there's a yeah. lot of shamble on there. And it's really sad that they only play on, like, what, one or two songs on that whole album together? Other than that, like, they never were recording at the same time, apart from, like, Happiness is a Warm Gun, supposedly. But, um, yeah, I, don't, I mean, this is, I started listening to this when I was about uh, 13. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I've been told my whole life I'd heard this was, like, the greatest album of all time, and I, re- I really liked it. I think at that time, even at that time, I think there were others I liked a little more. But Yeah, well, Revolver. And Rubber Soul are both way better albums. I discovered Revolver after Sgt. Pepper. So I had the the Blue Album and the Red Album, as they're now called. And that's that's what I really kind of um, cut my teeth on, was listening to those over and over and skipping Lady Madonna. But like th- those uh, those albums were, were huge for me. And then, yeah. I don't know, it might have been Abbey Road? Because I, I really yeah. got into the Beatles through my cousins, who were five and ten years older respectively and so abbey road i think was the first album of theirs i really loved because i'd heard it a lot and then i kind of backed into it by sample but it wasn't until college i don't think it was until i had a cd player my second year of college that i really heard revolver and that I didn't, pretty quickly became my favorite i didn't listen to the white album until i was in high school but revolver was the first beatles record i had because um when i moved to alaska to live with my dad i think one of my older siblings had been up there to visit in the in the early 70s or something and there were three no wait what was it there was revolver these were eight track tapes mm-hmm. that were at my dad's house that i discovered wow uh, hidden among the count basie tapes there was revolver there was jackson 5 there was bridge over troubled water um, that may have been it, but those three records I immediately collected and put into my dad's car, which had an eight track tape player. And we listened to them cause he, you know, he had a friend. This is what's crazy about the time. He had a friend that owned a record store that was capable of making his own eight track tapes, oh. like, like mixtapes on eight track. And so he would make mixtapes for my dad of, uh, all this Glenn Miller stuff. And so my dad had all these like private reserve eight tracks of his favorite, um, you know, his favorite jazz stuff. And then I had these three pop records and any chance I got, I would slip my pop record in and he would listen to it, you know, and kind of like, yeah, it's good. Uh, let, you know, he'd let me listen to it for a while. But so Revolver was the my first and only Beatles record for a long time before I did what a lot of 
early Beatles fans from the from the seventies and eighties did, which was I got the blue album, mm-hmm. and then I got the red album. That's the same order I got them in the backwards order. Yeah, blue and then red, and between the blue and the red, I mean I was covered Beatles wise, mm-hmm. and was kind of scared to listen to the records themselves until probably yeah junior junior year in high school maybe it's not a very it's not something i'm proud of but given my budget and my interest a lot of my entrees into bands that became my favorites were through best ofs or greatest hits just because it was the most economically viable way well and that was the time Mm -hmm. you know what the thing i don't know if i've ever listened to an eagles record uh, but i've listened to the eagles greatest hits i mean it's got it's got the most popular album of all time yeah that's all you need really Mm -hmm. but so (laughs) So, uh, so revolver isn't just, I mean, I, it's, I think the best Beatles record, but also it's burned into me, like burned into my young emotions Mm -hmm. so powerfully, um, that I can't separate it from, from being 10 or being 14 or, you know, it's like, it's been with me my whole life basically. But this record was one of the ones I was scared to listen to on its own. And when I listened to it, finally on its own that fear was confirmed because i was like so many things when you love them i was scared to be disappointed really? by the thing that i loved yeah i'm always, you know if i hear a if i hear a perfect work like i love my bloody valentine's um t- uh record loveless the one uh, loveless i love it i love it i love it i love every minute of it and i am very resistant to listening to the other music made by My Bloody Valentine. I just don't want to tarnish the thing that I love with mis- with any missteps. I don't want to hear his folk record. You know, I just want to hear, mm-hmm. I just want to keep the perfect thing. And the Beatles were so perfect through so much. Have you ever, have you ever heard their, that the, the other greatest hits, um, the Brown one called love songs. Oh yeah, it's it came ju- out in like the seventies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I remember like, that. That was that was uh, that was a popular one. Yeah, it, it, it looks had, like, like it's them in like a kind of leather like, covered. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a it's an incredible mixtape, is what it is. It's a very unusual combination of those songs, and it's it's just like a weird. It's a very weird listen and a an emotional listen. It's it's there. It's their sappy tunes, I guess, for lack of a better term, and um, and taken out of their context and put into this mm-hmm. record. It's a it it also was on my turntable a lot growing up. I'm seeing here. But, it came out 1977. Yeah, yeah. I still have all that stuff too. All those vinyls. So I, I, I should th- get. Good. No, I should just say I should have gotten my Sgt. Pepper out and listened to it on the record player. <laughs> Amazon Prime. <laughs> um, so this thing came along, and I, I learned about it from, I think I, I'm already forgetting, but I think I heard about it from an, inter- an interview with um, Giles Martin on um, All Songs Considered, the NPR show. And uh, I just happened, happen, I didn't even realize it was out yet. I'd heard it was coming, but again, why am I going to pay attention to that? Uh, it's not my favorite. You're talking about this remix. 
Yeah, the remix. I mean, I, I it had been out for, I guess, a week or two when I heard this interview. And the nice thing in this interview is it's... Um, they basically he Giles will like he'll talk about some part of a song he plays usually plays the I think he usually starts with the stereo mix then plays the mono mix might have been backwards and then third plays the new one and I, I could I could really really hear the difference and you know again dead rock and roll ears but but I mean I heard stuff on there I just didn't I don't remember ever hearing or even knowing was on there and I instantly, yeah. as soon as it was over, I jumped over to music, Apple Music, where it was uh, already up. And like I said, I listened to it three times Saturday before last. Yeah. So I was, I, you know, I, I went into it before my first listen. I went into it ready to like it. So you went into it ready to be sort of meh. And then how did you, I, I still don't, I have a guess what your feeling is. I bet it's complicated, but mostly positive. Well, yeah. So the bass sounds amazing. But it sounds modern, you know, like the way that the bass is compressed and the, the I mean, what you hear in the bass is this incredible, like, uh, Paul, Paul took a lot from Carol Kay. You hear his, you his can, you plectrum. can tell, you can totally, you can totally hear, uh, was it, would it be Pet Sounds at this point? But there's so much he does that's very Beach Boys. He's really, he's really into it. You know, he's into that tone. Especially something like, and, with a little help from my friends. I mean, it almost sounds like he's deliberately aping a Beach Boys part. Yeah, yeah, this vibe, right? And and it's so cool to hear it given a modern treatment. Um, because now the bass, for, so for most of the tunes now, there are some tunes where the original mix kind of already sounded like like a modern mix um, just because as they were, as they were throwing frogs at a wall, like one of them stuck every once in a while. But, but the, so the bass and the drums are just so much more, well, they're just in the mix. Finally. The right there. I mean, right they're just, they're, they're, it sounds, it sounds like a, that sounds like a bass. These sound like real drums and you can right. hear them. And if you, if you put them side to side, if you, if you just listen to, um, you know, if you listen to Fixing a Hole and the drums are completely, they sound like they're squashed into a can on the left-hand side. And then you you listen to the new version of it and the drums are just where they belong. They're in the room. They're, they're, there they are. You hear them and you're able to hear them and it sounds like a band, like you're saying, and it sounds like rock music. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just no, there's no way you can go back to the to that other mix and defend it as anything other than like what it was, which is the historical, that's the artifact, right? This is, if you had a choice between listening to the two things. Oh, you, you kind of can't unhear that difference. Y- yeah, but I would choose the new one. Mm-hmm. If I was going to, if I was, if I was washing the dishes and wanted to turn on my Sonos and play one of the two, I would play the new one. It just sounds amazing. But the, but the treatment of the bass and the, and it's less true i think in the treatment of the drums which kind of just sound they're just there but the bass is really treated like a modern bass and so you get you get the you get all the sound of it and it feels very just like well it's it's warm and punchy let's just call I think it what it is i think in this at that at that time i'm going to guess you weren't really supposed to notice the bass 
you weren't supposed to really hear the bass as an instrument. I mean, maybe it's a little different with somebody like John Entwistle, where he's, you know, like a marquee player. But as, as great as, as Paul's parts were, um, I mean, y- you might lose it alongside the left, left hand of the piano playing or something. If you're not listening yeah. carefully, it wasn't meant to stand out in the way that <laughs> by the time he's in Wings, it feels like it's getting a little bit louder every album. Well, and what's funny is that even in the original mix of Lovely Rita, the bass and the vocals are so front. Like the bass is absolutely the only thing going on in that track because the entire rest of the band, everything is mashed over in the left channel. Like the right channel is, and this is what's crazy. I didn't ever realize this about Lovely Rita, but all the shaker sounds, the egg shaker in that tune. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of percussion. Well, except the egg shaker is all voice. It's them going shaka 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 shaka. Wow! And I never heard it before this before I listened to this new mix, and then I went back and listened to the old mix. It's even more evident in the old mix. They're they're seriously like I can't believe they're not laughing. I th- I think I hear them laughing. I mean they're just like shaka 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 shaka. Lovely Rita. Shaka 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 shaka. They do they do doing that through the there's whole some, thing. There's some of that and, stuff where like you wonder like was I not listening carefully before? Like how did I like I, I was listening on um when I'm sixty four. I almost thought they used a different vocal because when he says uh, grandchildren on your knee and I'm like wait a minute what was that? Has he always done a jokey rolling of the R's on that song and I just never heard it before? Was I not listening carefully or is this really that much clearer? Because it's unavoidable when you're listening to it on headphones. He's doing a funny English guy voice. Isn't that crazy? Have, I mean, did you know the, that, had you noticed that before? I knew that because because I'm on the because I am so on the hunt for his camp. Any any bit of his campiness, I've, I I put a little I put a little crime scene flag, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like bullets after yep. a drive by. You put little flags there, it is. and there here's some blood splatter <laughs> over here, and he's rolling his R's here. Uh, and you know, I say this with. The utmost love. I don't believe utmost, that the Beatles really is it utmost. The Beatles, I don't believe that they could be what they are without it, without him doing that. But he just. But I, I won't let it go by, you know. Yeah, without, right. without like. <laughs> but so if you listen to Lovely Rita and start and hear that in the voice, then you realize almost all the percussion is them making mouth sounds. Except for there's one percussion part that I really think is just Lennon going like this, just tapping the mic with his finger. Wow. Uh, and, and you're going like, you guys, you know, you have drums there, too. Like, do you have to be doing that? So weird. Yeah. I just I can't say enough about the drums, though. I mean, and this the point I was trying to make earlier about like, well, you got got the material and whether you like it or not. But like, you know, did you mean it to sound this thin? And you know, yeah. probably not. Probably not. But with with Ringo's drums, he is he is a very talented and but very subtle, very understated player. But the difference is when you can really hear the drums in Dan the Life, it's profound. When you it's actually amazing. his floor toms change the way his floor toms sound on this remix changed this album for me. I, I'm actually not exaggerating. That no, if there's I any don't. sound I notice more than any other, it's the incredible amount of personality. In his very understated fills, especially on the floor, Tom, it's a revelation. Yeah. It's a different album. Yeah. He's just and he's his part in Day in the Life is 
is just basically fills. He's just it's just fills. The bass track he, is him doing a chicken shaker, and then I just think he went back and just added fills. Well, so here's what I so listening carefully to the original mix of Day in the Life, I heard all this stuff I had never heard before. That I uh, that I couldn't believe I had never heard before. That is for the most part completely straightened out in the in the this redo in the modern mix. Mm-hmm. So at the start of Day in the Life, the vocals, the lead vocals, are hard right. The bass and the drums are center, and then as the first verse goes, the lead vocals slowly pan to the center. <laughs> so. You're, they're way, way right at the top of the tune. And then all of a sudden, you're kind of like, wait a minute, what are they? And they're doing it slowly enough that, that in my whole life, I never noticed they did it. Yeah, I don't remember and that. Then, and then they're in the center at the end of the first verse. And then, love to turn you on. I'd love to. The first time. Turn. That's That starts hard left. Love to turn you on. And then Paul's voice in the middle of the tune, in the bridge, comes in hard right again. He's he's like singing that whole thing out in your right channel. And that, then that's that's the, woke, woke up, got out of bed. Yeah. And then the ah, ah, ah they're sitting in the studio turning the pan knobs back and forth. The the ahs are swimming around in the stereo mix. <laughs> and then this when it comes out of the that part so at, so at the top of the tune the vocals are hard right the the second half of the tune the vocals start hard left and the band is mixed hard right and it's just like they they must have they were sitting in the studio like what do we do next that, that's I know. what that's what I would do 20 years later on a four track when I was high <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, I know. Second verse. Let's do. Let's do a complete reversal of what we did on the first verse. Oh, look at me! And I'm if, as bold as love. <laughs> if you and if you li- if you listen to the new mix, the drums are in the middle, the bass is in the middle, the vocals are in the middle. It's like it sounds a hundred times better, mm-hmm. but it's a completely different listening experience. Like, it's not. It's not any. It's not even the same. There's, there's a couple like, songs. There's some of the songs in the middle. Um, you know, I don't even have the listing in front of me, but you know, it starts out big. You get those first three songs, which are such a such a rock block, mm-hmm. and then you know things things really pick up toward the end. But it gets a little, you know, like a little slows down a little bit. Gets a little saggy in the middle. But like a song, yeah. like I think I specifically we talked about this last week. Like in, in another age with a mono or stereo mix, just about the last thing that I would put on after working at McDonald's would be, let's say, good morning, good morning. Whereas now, there's so many of these songs that are so much more menacing and weird and like, and like ob- objectionably weird. Like, oh, what is going on in this song? You can, now you can hear how weird the song is. And now, so now yeah. I listen to good morning, good morning. First of all, the horns, the timbre of the horns it has that it has that you're in the room honkiness that you only hear on a real horn and to mm. hear bump 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 that, that big opening to hear that yeah. it's 
it's, it was shocking to me. But the part that blew me away, if I ever knew or remembered that Ringo has two parts on there that he does in really fucked up triplets, I don't remember it. But when he does it this time, it sounds like this death metal end of the universe. I mean, I don't remember that being on there, but like you listen to it now and it's like, it sounds like the Huns are invading. It's crazy. Well, and Paul's bass is is right in there with him doing and he's this. He's doing a like, weird, plucky, like tonk, tonk, tonk sound, right? Yeah, Isn't he doing yeah, like yeah. a really His, strange, like maybe high up, like near the tailpiece? He's doing something really offensive, and it sounds great. It, it is. It's offensive, and it, and and there are a couple of times when you're like, "Is that? How did that even make it into the take? Like that? It it's because muted, but, it's muted, but like it, I think it's going to be near the tailpiece with a very hard pick. Is what it sounds like. It's very, well, very or, percussive. It's uh, yeah, or or I don't know. I think I was, I'm remembering the right one. Yeah, I was thinking that it was a that it was sort of a felt pick, but that he was he does this thing where he's almost out of he's he's syncopated, but he gets out of syncopation, but it still is in rhythm. There are a couple of things in that baseline that are like, yeah, they, right. It has a sinister vibe. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. A, it's a sinister sounding tune, and that's another one. The original mix of that. Um, the entire band was just crammed into the left channel. Mm-hmm. There was so there's no way you would have heard it. You wouldn't have heard any of this that that we can hear now, because it's just like it it was like completely thrown thrown left, and then the horns were thrown right. Um, okay, I'm closing iTunes because I had it on for a second. And it was very scary. I closed it. Yeah. Oh my god, it sounds so good. That's uh, really great. So then you. The only ju- thing I was the only thing I uh, that I. The only stand I make on Good Morning up from either version is that it starts with a fucking rooster crow, which is like, no. But it was it may have been the first time that ever happened. Like, I know, let's put barnyard song sounds in it. And then all the barnyard sounds at the end where you're like, no, don't do that. You're, this isn't a Pink Floyd record. <laughs> Not yet. And then, but the best, the best part of it is, speaking of Pink Floyd... Right at the end of Good Morning, there's a chicken mm-hmm. that hands off to the lead Bow. guitar of Sgt. Yeah. Pepper. Bow! And that's so Pink Floyd. Yeah. There's that there's that tune on But it's like the a match cut. cut. It's a, you know what I mean? Like in movies you get a match cut. Like the yeah. uh, the ape guy throws the bone up into the sky and it turns into the spaceship in two thousand one. Yeah. It's a musical match cut. There's there's one in, in Final Cut where there's a saxophone solo. Hmm. Oh no. The like Roger Waters sings a note and holds it, and then it turns into a saxophone. And there's no, there's no way. Listen, I've listened to it a hundred times in the headphones. You could just cannot decide when his voice and the sax where, where the where the blend is. You know, wow. it just it just is seamless. He just sings this note, and it just turns into a sax solo. And it's really like well done, Pink Floyd. Supposedly John's well demand done, was well done, supposedly John's demand was each animal had to be. Followed by an animal that would either eat or terrify the preceding animal. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, supposedly. Uh, so uh, wait, there's uh, one. There's one thing. There's one thing in the stereo mix that I missed, uh, or another thing that that when they redid it, they they didn't do, and I was surprised that they didn't do it. In when I'm 64, there's a thing in the old mix because. Because it's so screwed up, because the vocals are all left, 
and the band is kind of in the middle and then Lennon's voice is hard right mm-hmm. and the horns are coming in and all this stuff. The, because the stereo field is so crazy, there's a little moment where, you know, where the bell goes ding bonk, ding bonk, dun dun dun, you know, that little do, section. Do, do, do. Yeah. And the bell is on one side and the reply the band replies on the other. Oh, that's nice. And it's, that, that's good it's a, use. Yeah, it's a very brief, like, bamp, bump, bamp, bump, 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 you know, and it, it, it's, it's cute and it's cool. And they didn't do it in the, in the redo, and I missed it. It was a small little detail that they could have done. You know, the bell didn't have to be, the bell didn't have to be drenched in reverb and be up the middle. You know, it could have been, right, it, they right, could have right. redone this. But but because the band was in the center, it they didn't maybe have the option to do that trade off. Man, I'm a small thing. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you get very personal about these things. I I honestly don't have that much really intelligent stuff to say as ever. It's just it's mainly that I was I was really surprised uh, and delighted by what how much more I enjoy listening to this particular album this way. It, it's so much better. You hear, you hear. I mean, I don't want to beat this to death, but you know, it's it's less cockamamie. Like when you can, and there's something about going back and listening to those original tracks and how they recorded them, and you're like, there's totally a rock band inside here. Not that everything has to be like over over the top, but like on the one hand, you don't appreciate the forcefulness of the band arrangement of the Sgt. Pepper reprise. There's no way you will never hear that song the same after hearing this new version because you realize what a fucking like Led Zeppelin song it is. It's it sounds like the immigrant song, like years before the immigrant song. It's just pounding. Whereas at the same time, on even something something like She's Leaving Home, you may not totally appreciate the delicacy that's there or the subtlety that's there. So it's it's opened up the entire spectrum of the way that this album can be appreciated by letting you hear so much more of what's actually being played. But but so this is where I this is where I get back to my initial f- f- worry or my initial hot take. Yeah. Which is that as I was listening to it, I, I don't know why I was not being a, I wasn't being a brat. I was not sitting here looking for a reason to be a brat. I was just, just listening to it with my mind empty. And then a thought came into my head, which was, Oh, this will sound much better in the lobby of the Ace Hotel in Palm Springs. And I was right. You know what I mean? Like, hmm. like this record, you couldn't really have played in the lobby of a hotel, a cool hotel before, because it was too kooky. It was, if you did play it, it was like, if you're standing over by the elevators, all you hear is the tambourine and, and John Lennon making... <laughs> and mouth sounds. Like, yeah, mouth sounds. <laughs> and now, this record, which is which we all acknowledge is a classic, now we can play it all the modern places that we play music. In the elevator, in the lobby, in the car, in the... Oh, I see. This is a, a t- secondary tertiary concern. They're going to take this record you want to listen to with headphones, and they're going to start sticking it in your face. Well, not not just not that, but that the intention of this is that we listen to music differently now. And part of the reason that that we needed this was that we couldn't listen to this record in our contemporary way. It, it was just unintelligible. And so it has been it has been made to conform to the way that we hear music now. Right. And so there are two. I think that this record is for two groups of people and one of them is one of the groups of people is everybody 
here's a record now that is for everybody. And all the people that have never listened to Sergeant Pepper before will get a chance to hear it. It will be everywhere again. I, I uh, just before we started the show, I looked briefly, and it's it's like in the top five on the charts right now. Oh wow, wow. Um, you know, like like here it is, world. The thing you've always been waiting for this is the ver- this is the 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 new version of episode four except it didn't ruin it right right it didn't put uh job of the hut in it it's real it's good this thing and the other group of people that this is for is beatles historians like you and me who will sit for two hours and talk about fucking the the what what pick paul mccartney used right because it's fast it's another one of a hundred fascinating glimpses into what the Beatles did and what they were. But but it does fall into the category of not the Beatles in the sense that it isn't, this isn't what they did. This isn't, I mean, even even when they made mistakes, even when they made a big, a bad, a bad mix of, a, of Interesting. an album. Like it's almost it like it's not it's not canonical that it's uh, that it's something where like because other people were were working on this in the absence of them and George Martin. Well, yeah, and it's just like you get what you get and don't be upset. Yeah, like, we got the Beatles and they were great. We can and I think now will endlessly dissect them and it is great it's fascinating i love it every time i hear a isolated track or i mean they could have mixed this a hundred different ways they could have just put all the drums to the right this time instead of to the left and i would have listened to it and cackled well there's a similar there's a similar thing that happens in the like the star wars fan community where there's several different kinds of things that people will release but two general kinds of things that i've looked at on the one hand, you have people who are doing what's called a fan edit, which is like they do their own version with source material, with other material, with CGI material. They'll go in and basically make the movie the way they would like it to be or some uh-huh. creative remix of their own design. You know, th- th- this is how they want it to be. And then at, at another end of that spectrum is people who are trying to like basically do a the most faithful reconstruction of the highest quality version of the original Star Wars movie that you could get. Get the highest non tinkered with highest quality non tinkered with material, and then put together a movie based on that. And there's all kinds of other stuff in between. I have a friend who did something called the Phantom Edit, where he went and he did. It's it's not exactly a fan edit. It's not like fan fiction, but he like minimized the amount of times that uh, the 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 Rasta guy talks. Like Jar Jar Binks. Jar, thank you, Jar Jar Binks. But um, but that that's so. Does this risk falling into that kind of like fan fiction territory? The thing is that the the involvement of George Martin and his son is like this is the last thing, right, that can be given that imprimatur of like George Martin touched this with his finger on his way out the door. Right. And so like if this record had come out and it was Danger Mouse got a hold of the original tracks and remixed Sgt. Pepper. I don't know what I would be sitting here thinking about it or saying. Well, this probably would not exist if it weren't for love, which, you know, love it or not, it's a very interesting idea. I think well implemented for what it is. Not really something I would want to return to a lot, but it's interesting that his, in some ways his trial run for this was helping his dad to do this mashup album. Right, which I didn't listen to, and w- and the parts of it that I've heard out in the wild, I've always been kind of astonished by, and like, whoa, 
that's weird and cool. And then I realize, oh, it's love. And then I immediately am like, I don't want to listen to that. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know what that is. I don't, you know. <laughs> it's like I'm like a six year old when there's a piece of parsley in their food. What is that? <laughs> you didn't notice. You didn't notice it for five bites. <laughs> and then once you did, ah. <laughs> there's green stuff in this. I can't eat this. Sudden parsley. <laughs> but um, but so so George gave this his blessing and it's like okay it is it then is within what we'll call the the canon the larger canon and i and like his string arrangements are you know are so extraordinary and like she's leaving home, which was always a song that that affected me very emotion, uh, very powerfully as a kid. I was a sentimental kid. Oh, me too. And that that whole idea of, of daddy, our um, baby's gone. When he when they would sing that line, I'd just be like, oh, it's very sentimental and schmaltzy in some ways, even now with a kid. But like at the time, I was like, oh god, this is what it must feel like to be a parent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Super super schmaltzy. You know, just like. The cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon. I would sit and weep at the radio <laughs> when that song would come on. Um, at, for, and you know, honey, for all these... I miss you, and I'm being good. I'd love to be with you if only I could. <laughs> I know. All these emotions, I didn't even know what I was crying about, you know. But but now, when I listen, when I listen to She's Leaving Home, there's something about the sentiment now that I feel is really callow, that's really, you know, 27 year olds trying to interject themselves into a dynamic. Like I'm assuming that the girl who's leaving home is like, I, I don't think that she's going away to, you know, she's not like 18. I think that she's, I think she's 20. 15 or 16 and she's going to sow her wild oats and swing in London. Oh no! I I always heard it as that she was twenty four. Oh and really? Com- yeah, and had committed she's to Eleanor being. Rigby. Yeah, she'd committed to being the spinster daughter, living with her parents. That's why they're so. I like yours. So strangely over connected to her. Mm-hmm. You know how could she do this to me? Like if she's fifteen, it's just like our oh, daughter ran away. But this this feeling that that she had that she was a part of that nuclear family that, you know, that her mother was codependent. It was it. And it felt like she had been released somehow. She'd finally, and maybe through rock music had, had felt like I've got to get out of here and had gone and gotten her first job. So that part of it is, is what I always got so emotional about, but Mm. Paul and John both, make these lyrical choices that are snide, that are snide toward the parents. And yeah, um, never a thought for ourselves when in fact it's only themselves really that they're thinking about. Yeah, right. They are, they're, they're sarcastic and contemptuous of the, of the parents standing there, like having this, this boo hoo. And I never heard that as I never heard it as boldly before. And it, it took me out of the tune for the first time in my life this time listening to it carefully. And I was like, you know what, you guys, you don't fucking know everything. 
right? But all right, <laughs> slow your roll. <laughs> all right, all right. Also, like, to uh, also to quote friend of the show Bill Janovitz, um, you know, actually, fun is one of the easiest things to buy. It's one of the few things that's actually pretty easy to buy. Interesting, interesting. Good point. Because well, he's saying <laughs> fun's the one thing money can't buy, but no, actually, yeah. you know, no. there's a lot of other stuff that's way harder to buy than fun. Have fun and, and you know and she's having fun. Waiting to have an appointment with a man from the motor trade that doesn't really sound like she's having fun. It sounds like she's, you know, mm. she's starting her life, but it's not. It's not going to be fun, my friend. Mm. Let the crushing begin. Have fun, Have fun in the castle. I, I would like. I would like to call attention to that I had never really, really heard before was in getting better a, a song that that even though it sounds so much better in this mix i feel is more and more reprehensible all the time it really feels like something that should have been consigned <laughs> to magical mystery tour or yellow submarine yeah. soundtrack yeah i mean getting better and being for the benefit of mr kite both could have could have gone on to magical mystery tour <laughs> and made that a whole album a whole album that i didn't like um but but Paul's lyric, me hiding me head in the sand. <laughs> it's Jar Jar Binks. Mm, it used to be our young man. <laughs> He's fucking Me's Jar Jar me head in the sand. Oh, I wanted to I wanted to go back in time and take a plane. <laughs> Grand children. <laughs> Push open the door, walk down in there, grab him by the Nehru collar and shake him. Yeah. <laughs> I'm from the future. Come with me if you want to live. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I guess I'll be coming along then. Nope, Bob's your uncle.